Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. As usual, we're here to answer questions that you may have about your meditation practice or challenges you have in your life relating to your mental and spiritual well-being. So if you have questions, you can post them anytime in the chat. We'll spend the first 15 minutes in silent meditation, giving everyone a chance to ask questions and giving us a brief opportunity to collect ourselves and to bring our minds to the present moment. So we'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to start answering questions.
All right, that's 15 minutes. From here on, we will begin to ask and answer questions. So if you have any questions, you're welcome to continue to post them in the chat. We'd ask that the chat be reserved only for questions from here on. Anything else will just be removed, just to keep it focused. If you don't have a question, just close your eyes. Stay mindful. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. How can I be mindful without wanting or expecting a future benefit? I often find noting unenjoyable, but my desire for future benefit is why I do it. Well, I would recommend you to consider um, a somewhat of a change in perspective. That the fact that you find the noting unenjoyable is interesting, is of interest, and is important. The fact that you find anything unenjoyable is important. And so the perspective you're, you're describing is one of, of looking for enjoyment. And the implication here is that something in the future will be enjoyable. But that attitude is problematic. And in fact, you're seeing, though you don't quite realize it, you're seeing how problematic that attitude is because you're suffering from it. You're not getting what you want. And this is very clearly what the Buddha described as suffering, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want. When what you wish for, when your wishes are unfulfilled. And that is only possible when there is wishing, when there is wanting. So the Buddha said the cause of suffering is our craving, our desire for enjoyment. And that's a part of what mindfulness helps you see. So that you're seeing it is important, and it's important that you make the the leap, make the move to uh, start noting your desire for future benefit, your lack of enjoyment, which is probably um, the opposite, which aversion or disappointment, disliking, boredom even could be. All of these things uh, are interesting and important because they're what's causing you suffering. They're, they, they're, they spring from desire, from craving, from partiality. So mindfulness helps you see that, helps you see how stressful that is, how unpleasant it is. And as a result of seeing, you naturally let go, you naturally disincline towards it. That's the power of wisdom. You don't have to fix you don't need some future goal. You just have to see your present reality clearly. And the goal, which is freedom from suffering, peace, happiness, comes by itself as a result of letting go, not as a result of getting something you enjoy. What roughly should be the proportion of time between practicing meditation compared to reading or listening to the Tama? I don't know. Um, I, off the top of my head, I want to say something like two to one, two hours meditation, one hour study. Seems reasonable. 
maybe three to one, I don't know. It's not really about time, is it? It's about quality and focus. I may soon get a job where I drive long distances for many hours. What is the best way to stay mindful while driving while still maintaining road safety? Is noting driving, driving too ambiguous? Uh, no, it's not. It's not terrible. I mean, it, it's too. It's a little too uh, vague or general. You might say, but for ordinary daily activities, it's okay. It's something. You can also note things like sitting and seeing and hearing and all that. You do have to be careful when you're driving because it's easy to start to get drowsy. Now, in meditation, this can happen anyway, especially when you're also engaged in otherworldly uh, activities outside of it. Meditation can can um, become overwhelmed by drowsiness. So when you start to be mindful driving, you can fall asleep at the wheel. I'd recommend to supplement your practice from time to time with, say, chanting, perhaps, uh, reciting the Buddha's teaching. You can memorize some of the Buddha's teaching as you're sitting. It's not mindfulness, it's not a substitute for meditation, but when driving, you do have to be careful. Are retreats necessary to progress on the path, or can one progress just as effectively without retreats as a layperson? Well, those aren't the only two options, right? The only two answers. The, the truth is somewhere in, the betwe in between. Retreats are not necessary to progress. But no, you cannot practice. You cannot likely progress just as effectively without retreats. Now, a retreat is just a word. It's just a concept. Um, the the nature of the difference is a the uh, intensity. So practicing one or two hours a day versus practicing ten or twelve hours a day. Uh, B having the support of a teacher, uh, daily interviews with a meditation teacher and guidance and progress, being given new lessons every day. And C, having the supportive environment of the meditation center without all the distractions of your home and family and uh, other activities. So a meditation course has a lot of benefits to it. And it's unlikely that most people are going to get the same benefits practicing at home. That being said, it's not as though you cannot progress at all outside of a meditation center, outside of a formal meditation course. So it's, um, it's not a lost cause. My living situation isn't great. There's noise from neighbors, TV, music, chatter, etc. With background music, I'm undisturbed, but I can't meditate. Hearing doesn't work as sound is permanent. Advice? Well, um, to some extent you're wrong. Uh, I mean, you're wrong, and to some extent that's important. 
because sound isn't permanent. Sound is momentary. It arises and it ceases. But I know what you're saying, and it's, it might sound like nitpicking, but it is an important nitpick because um, it's not about whether it works. <laughs> um, the question I would ask is, what do you mean doesn't work? What, what are you expecting to happen? This isn't a tool where suddenly some magical thing happens. It, hearing works, uh, and in fact, you're kind of pointing out how it works. It works because it does nothing. It works because it shows you that you're not in control. It shows you that the sound is not under your control, and that's why there comes this reaction. It's not working, or it doesn't work, or it would be useless to say hearing, because our mind is fixated on what will be useful, what will uh, allow us to control the situation. So saying to yourself, hearing is a change in perspective. It allows you to confront the sound just as it is without needing for it to go away. And you'll see that actually sound is momentary, and that's important because you can become enlightened just saying hearing, hearing. That being said, uh, I do sympathize with um, words. Sa sound that is actual speech is challenging, absolutely. It's possible to meditate with it, and if you have no alternative, and as you say, this is your living situation, then I would recommend you really do some hardcore investigation until you can um, perceive sound as just sound. It's a challenge. And I guess the the um, supportive practice that will allow it, make it possible is to note the thoughts that come up when you're distracted by what people are saying, the emotions, because you're going to be judging the things people say. You'll like some things, you'll dislike th some things. Maybe you'll start to think, oh, these people are talking nonsense, and you'll feel condescension towards them or conceit. I'm better than them and that sort of thing. All of these things are interesting to see and can be quite useful to see them, to see your own bad habits, how you react to things. You can be frustrated, of course, when you have sound incessant and that sort of thing. So really um, take it as an opportunity to go to some extent hardcore. I mean, not hardcore instead of in the terms of forcing yourself, but really radical in the sense of trying to experience these things that are so con caught up with concept with concepts, people, places, things, ideas, conversations. Try and really get to the really get so that try and really see the sound as just sound, and your emotions and your thoughts as just emotions and thoughts. And you should be able to see some benefit. I know in the beginning it's very hard. It's a very hard thing to do when there's noise and people talking and that sort of thing. Not just noise, but the, the talking. Noise is a lot easier. I try to be mindful as much as possible during the day using the noting. I notice that whenever I have to talk to my female classmates, I stop noting and lust enters my mind. How can I be more mindful? Well, it's just practice. Um, I would do try and do daily practice. I don't know if you're doing our at-home course, probably. It sounds like you might be. We might have already done it. Um, you can, of course, be mindful of lust. Um, of course, <laughs> often it will take some time to have the presence of mind to actually um, be able to note it. But uh, over time, it becomes just a struggle where you, these 
uh, unmindful state center and you get distracted and you're no longer meditating and then at some point you realize it and you start to be mindful again and then you get caught up again and so it's just a matter of working at it there's no magical answer there are things you can do to mitigate lust like contemplating the foulness of the body so that's also useful take some time to contemplate the parts of the body the hair on the head the hair on the body the nails the teeth the skin and all the other inside parts as well piece by piece pick it apart free yourself from lust but ultimately just try and be as mindful as you can and consider that this isn't a this isn't a short term practice there's often a, a bit of a overestimation that meditators have where they think um, this is something that they're going to accomplish in the next week or so or month or even year. And honestly, for most people, unless you're dedicated to it, practicing in your room um, day and night for years, it's for most people going to be something that's going to take lifetimes to be free from lust lifetimes so be patient and uh, and dedicated and you'll see results you'll constantly see the fruits but don't fall into overestimation thinking you've somehow achieved the goal or you're close or it should be right around the corner or um, disappointment when you haven't reached the goal yet or that sort of thing only look at the quality of your present state and work on that don't worry about um, where you should be or how far you are from being free from lust and so on how much sleep is necessary as a layperson some say three to four hours is enough Well, it would be enough if you were not living as a layperson. If you were a layperson, say, living in a meditation center or a monastery and didn't have a lot of uh, worldly activities. But I would say for most people, six is, is pretty good. If you're doing a daily meditation practice, six is doable. Maybe some people can get away with five, but not really more than, not really less than that. I recommend six, I would say outside of a meditation center. What is the purpose of life? I have heard it is about finding meaning in life. Can you share your perspective so I can find my purpose or meaning in life? So life isn't a thing that exists. Um, life is just a concept and well, whether that's even relevant or not, um, things don't have purpose. Does a rock, what is the purpose of a rock? It only has, that's, that question only has meaning if you're, say, a theist. It only has meaning in reference to an entity. The, the things only have purpose to someone. So a, a purpose um, might be something that a god, God has a purpose. And so if something has a meaning or a purpose, um, it, it has a purpose to them. But that doesn't have any place in, that doesn't have any significance in Buddhism. 
because a, a god's purpose is no more important than a human's purpose. I mean, maybe you could say a little bit more interesting because gods are kind of impressive, but not so much. Gods can be very much delug delusional and Brahmas, you know. Um, w one important aspect of Buddhism, in fact, is letting go of meaning-making. Letting go of making things out to be more than they are. It's a core concept in mindfulness practice. It's why we remind ourselves seeing is just seeing. Hearing is just hearing. So... Um, it's not just that there is no meaning, it's that the actual idea of trying to find a meaning is harmful, is wrong-intentioned. It's going to take you away from reality. Reality doesn't admit of meaning at all. Reality just is. Which is at once kind of terrifying and liberating because it means you get to choose. What does life mean to you? It's kind of terrifying because we don't really know. We don't really have any direction, and there is no direction. The only solace you can find that might sort of approach, not an answer to your question, but help you find an, uh, a truth that will pacify this questioning, is to see that there is suffering. In other words, there are things that we don't want. There are things that uh, we try to avoid, we try to get away from. And that reality of there being a sort of judgment, I guess you could say, where we um, where we, we are averse, where we incline towards certain things and we incline away to, from certain things. There is um, a stable sort of compass that you can find in regards to getting to a state where you are no longer um, averse to something, where you're no longer running away from it. I mean, in, in ordinary terms, where you're no longer suffering. But we only suffer because of our aversion, because of our partiality. And so ultimately it comes down to not having any partiality. But it, it surrounds this idea of suffering. So you can find meaning or you can find significance in suffering because it really does exist in the sense of us not wanting certain things and wanting other things. And what's interesting about that is the um, tendency we have to chase after things that cause us suffering in other words we're inconsistent we want certain we want happiness and we don't want suffering and yet our actions our speech even our thoughts lead us away from happiness away from the things we want and towards the things we don't want we think we will find happiness in this way it ends up only making us more stressed more unhappy more sick more corrupt and so it's inconsistent and the solving of that um, inconsistency or hypocrisy or it's not quite hypocrisy but that going against your own um, 
best interests is is a solid uh, compass because it really is true it's something you can really hold on to and say yes this is true i'm doing things that are going against what i'm actually intending you know i want this to happen and the results are not what i want i want to be happy but i'm doing things that are causing me unhappiness and that's one way of describing what the buddhist path is freedom from suffering comes from seeing clearly that you're causing yourself suffering you are your habits your inclinations uh, are causing you suffering and thereby letting go of those so it's not quite a purpose um or or if it is a purpose it's a it's a it's a one you've decided on but it's a valid purpose it's a purpose that has grounding in reality to free yourself from this um inconsistency of wanting certain things and and attaining the opposite can one see evidence of nibbana in their mindfulness practice to help them feel more confident if committing to the practice not really I want. I mean, I want to. It would be nice to be able to say yes. I don't think so. Um, it's an interesting question because obviously that would be the best, right? Because nibbana is the goal. So if you could see evidence, well, I, okay. So I guess that is the, the where it is at. There is evidence um, because it's consistent. There is a there is a, a logical connection between the present moment results uh, of of being mindful and nibbana but to be honest it, it's just more important that you don't rely on you don't rely on the consequences you don't rely on nibbana or something like that to to keep you going so what you can see and what what might reasonably be described as having something to do with nibbana is the um the letting go or the you know, the extinguishing of suffering that you will see as a result of being mindful uh and i i, sh I, I you know so i immediately said no you don't because I want to caution you to say that that is not nibbana but it's consistent and it's really enough in that you can see where it's leading by by its very nature the uh, nature of a, a mindful experience is one that has extinguished the cause of suffering has extinguished suffering has extinguished the suffering that would have come about by being unmindful you can see how you you just by being mindful there's less there there's something less there there's an extinguishing and so through systematic practice and through a skillful practice being able to adapt your practice to every situation you start to feel and, and experience more a greater and greater sense of extinguishing putting out fires and so nibbana one it's translated sort of literally as uh, extinguishing or um 
being a letting go even it can be the idea not not clinging and you can see that moment by moment and you see it increase and you see a greater sense of that and you don't need nibbana as an actual experience to gain confidence because you're seeing the progress you're seeing the benefits in the present moment the reason why you don't see benefits and and it starts there's doubt and there's worry and so on is lack of mindfulness is the anytime a worry might come up you uh, fall into it you you follow after it so the nature of mindfulness practice is such that you can take worry you can take doubt as an object you don't have to cling to dogma or belief or a future goal of nibbana you can actually practice relating to worry learning about it not rejecting it but seeing it for what it is and rejecting it not because it's getting in the way of some goal but rejecting it because the worry the doubt and so on is in and of itself harmful it's not it's unbeneficial and you you see that you don't believe it or think it intellectually you see it directly for yourself that's what's great about mindfulness you don't need to believe in anything you see for yourself um directly based on on the experience that you're being mindful of can we do meditation at night um i mean absolutely yes but um i just would point out that what's important is whether you can be mindful so questions about meditation always have this issue that i don't quite know what you're referring to it's just a word right meditation is just a word and there's so many things that people call meditation and not all of them are what i teach so i'm going to have to assume and limit my answer to the question to what i teach which is a type of meditation mindfulness meditation or vipassana seen clearly based on mindfulness meditation um and i don't know if you, you probably haven't read our booklet if you have you probably wouldn't ask this question so i'd recommend reading our booklet maybe even doing our at-home course you'll be able to see what it means to be mindful to meditate and you'll start to understand that it's the kind of thing you can really just do anytime do now I mean, if I were to quip, I might say, you can't do it at night, you have to do it now. There's only one time. You can't do it at night because it's not night right now. If it's night where you are, then yes, you can do it at night, but you can only do it right now. You can never do it later or in the past. When meditating and watching thoughts of the monkey mind, that seems like a higher self. What is that? Is it just the mind split into two or something? Uh, it's the past and the present. So what you'll start to come to see is that what you are, quote-unquote, um, watching is just something that just happened. It's always going to be something that just happened. 
And so there's the experience, and then there's the uh, contemplation of it or the memory of it the moment later. Mind is not an entity. Mind is moments. So uh, you can see that because that moment where you talk about watching, that moment where it seems like you're watching, was a moment that is gone now, right? That moment of watching is already gone. So it's something that arose and ceased. And that's the nature of reality. Uh, Higher self is just an idea. It's a meaning that you give to it. But the nature was that experience of watching, which was momentary. So the mind is not split in two, it's split into moments. The, the, the mind, mind in Buddhism is a moment. A mind lasts a moment and then ceases. And then a new mind arises. Is Sotapati Bala attained at the same moment as Sotapati Magga? What is the view in the Mahasi tradition? Well, there's no view in the Mahasi tradition. Mahasi Sayada was a Burmese monk, and there's no way that he would have an answer other than the Orthodox Burmese, Orthodox Theravada answer, and it would be the same answer you get from any Orthodox Theravada monk anywhere. So the 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 the, the answer is not going to come from the Mahasi tradition. It's going to come from the Orthodox Theravada, which is that Sotapati Magga is one moment, and Sotapati Pala is a moment right after Sotapati Magga, and it can be multiple moments after Sotapati Magga. It can also occur uh, without Sotapati Magga. Further, uh, because after one has attained Magga, okay, well, let's explain exactly what these terms mean. Sotapati is the attainment of the stream. So as a Sotapanna, we call someone who has attained the stream. It means someone who has seen, experienced cessation, experienced Nibbana, uh, for the first time, is free from sakayaditi, view of self, is free from silabhata paramasa, which is practices and observances and um, rules. So, so refraining from things and undertaking things that are outside of the practice. So wrong abstentions and wrong practices, practices that don't lead to enlightenment, thinking they lead to enlightenment and freedom from doubt about uh, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. So that's a sotapanna. And that comes the first moment that one uh, has the experience of cessation. And so that first moment of it is called sotapatimaga. The next moment of it has the same same characteristics, but it's different because it doesn't have the power to... um, turn you into a sotapanna. So it's really just a technical distinction. That first moment can only ever happen once. Why? Because the next moment of the same thing, it's already happened. It's already done its job. So it's it's likened to the text, say it's like if you have a fire and you pour a pitcher of water over the fire, the fire is extinguished. So you take another picture pitcher of water. So the other, next pitcher of water, if you pour it on the fire, can it extinguish the fire? No because the fire is already extinguished. But the water is the same. So Sotapati Magga and Sotapati Pala have the same qualities, but they never can be the same moment. We, the Sotapati Magga is, has a different name because it's that first time a person, the first moment of the experience. And the next moment is Sotapati Pala. So if later on, the same meditator 
now a sotapanna, uh, reattains that same state, it will not be called sotapatimaga ever again. It will always, each moment will be called sotapatipala. Pala is spelled with one A, one L, by the way. How does one respect and honor his or her teacher? Uh, well, the best way, of course, is practice. The Buddha said, Yoko ananda bikuwa bikuniwa upasako wa upasika wa dhamma nu dhamma patipanno anu dhammachari samiji patipanno anu dhammachari so tathagatang sakkaroti karukaroti manyeti pujeti paramaya pujaya Right before the Buddha passed away, people came with flowers, candles, and incense and um respected the Buddha, paid respect to the Buddha. The Buddha said, this isn't the way you, these are fine and nice, but this isn't how you truly respect a Buddha. So this is a Buddha, this isn't quite what you asked, but I think the same thing still applies. The Buddha said, whoever, whatever bhikkhu or bhikkhuni or layman or laywoman practices the Dhamma for the realization of the Dhamma, rightly practices, rightly fares by the Dhamma, such a person does right by me, um, reveres me, respects me with the highest form of puja, with the highest form of honor, homage. So that, I think, applies if you practice the teacher's teaching. That's the highest respect. I mean, there are other things that are, of course, important. Respect is, because respect is something that um is a delicate thing and and easy to overlook um there's a general sense of being respectful towards someone who is your teacher uh, i'd say most especially at the time that they are your teacher if later on you want to go and say bad things about them that's different but during the time that they're your teacher um even if you're not sure they're a good person or not, it's not so much about who they are, it's about the position you're in. And it is proper for a student to be respectful for, towards their teacher. But that's just about being respectful. There is no um, form that it has to take. It's not at all about the physical or even verbal acts. It's about the state of mind. So for some people, there will be very elaborate sort of ways of paying respect, like offering trays of flowers or candles or incense. Um, for it will be bowing down three times before your teacher. Um, some for Indian people, it will be touching your head to their feet, or in Sri Lanka they do that as well, touching your head to the feet of your teacher. But none of those are actual respect, right? It's possible to do all those things and still be really bitter and disrespectful in your mind really doing it um with without any good qualities that doesn't actually talk, speak to the qualities of mind on the other hand someone might have a simple sort of uh humble meek um uh attentive uh attitude but they don't do anything special like bowing down or anything like that 
there are some some actions and speech that follow from that and it it people often will take this a little too uh liberally and believe that they really shouldn't have to do anything so that their actions and speech shouldn't need to be any different just be, just to show their respect but the thing is if you're respectful it's not respect as equals it's respect as someone higher than you you put your teacher purposefully higher than you that's appropriate and so that involves things like not sitting on the higher chair than them um not interrupting them not um arguing with them i mean you can debate of course it's important to debate and to question but to have a def def deferent deferential attitude where we're not equals having an argument you 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 either defer to my opinion or you leave you know go find another teacher obviously there's no there's no one keeping you but it's not appropriate to think of yourself as a as equal uh except in terms of as a as a as a being of course as beings there's an equality and you don't have to put your teacher as higher than you in terms of their qualities or pretend that they're somehow perfect or something like that but it's 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 uh, it's your obligation to treat them verbally physically but most importantly mentally with with respect i don't know about the honoring so much that's not a okay so yeah i mean you're not asking about whether one has to so if one wants to honor their teacher it is good to be attentive and there are valuable ways there, there there's value in doing good things for them you'll see this in the text i'm not making this up like for monks there are whole um duties that a student has towards their teacher you got to clean their room you got to take out their chamber pot after they defecate in it you've got to bring them water in the morning you got to bring them toothbrushes in the morning uh you you gotta sweep and and just do every so many things you have to do for your teacher as a monk now none of that is of course required of a lay person even towards a monk but it's worth considering that these are all very good things and i you could even say obligations if it needs to be done you should think of of ways i, mean, I always did I always try. I mean, Ajahn Tong had so many people around him that it was so hard to find any one little thing that you could do for him. But I tried. He used he used to walk up to uh, to chanting on this forested path, and so I would go and sweep. Not only I, other people did this as well, but it, it wasn't always swept when he went. So I noticed that, and I would really make sure that it was swept, and I would go early and make sure the path that he was going to walk was swept that kind of thing you know any little thing i could do so certainly that's appropriate for a student i mean it certainly will uh, make you feel better and feel like you feel confident make you feel good about yourself it's just such a wholesome thing because uh, hopefully the teacher is also doing their duty towards you um, providing you with the knowledge and instruction that you need to progress Until I can find a Buddhist community, are there any reflections that help solitude? My interactions with people condition me, leave me lost and doubt solitude, 
until I watch your talks to bring clarity. Well, I, I mean, I guess to kind of sidestep the question, I would, I would, ha I would remind you to be mindful of the doubt and so on. Community is very important, practically speaking. I mean, I can talk all I want about how you just practice, you just do the right thing, but without good support and reminders, it's just practically so easy to get lost. So. There are online Buddhist communities. We have one. This is an extension of our online community. You can go to our Discord server, which is where most stuff happens. It's kind of quiet, but you can volunteer. There's a volunteer group that kind of gets you more involved. We have a study group that we had this morning. Uh, and I know it's not really a replacement, but another thing we have is we have what we call the mentorship uh, pro mentor program which uh, is just a means of getting of 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 it's just a meeting that we have once a month to get together people who are trying to build communities in their uh, in their area so people who are trying to have to create dhamma groups and it's just a chance for everyone to talk about their successes and maybe uh give share ideas about how to create community in their area and and how to how to bring people to the dhamma like just how to sign people up for courses in our tradition just for people who are um just going to pass along links to our at home course or share the our, our booklet on how to meditate or that sort of thing but that doesn't really answer your question about reflections uh, I mean, reading the Buddha's teaching is going to be a good support for sure. Listening to Dhamma talks will be a good support for sure. There's um, there are five reflections, daily reflections. You can probably look it up on the internet. Just daily reflections, and a lot of people like to chant those every day. We used to have them printed up somewhere. Daily Theravada Buddhist reflections. I'm not sure where you'd find them. You can, if you come and ask on our Discord server, I can probably give you a link to them, or someone else can, I'm sure. How can you tell that it is time to leave an abusive relationship, especially with parents? Well, leaving an abusive relationship is a is a an action. It's a worldly action. It doesn't speak to the Dhamma. So how can you tell anything has to relate back to reality? Otherwise, it's it's always just going to be um, convention, meaning there's no right or wrong answer. There will never be a right time because those aren't things that actually exist. They're conceptual, and so they have no valid answer. Right and wrong can only relate to ultimate reality. So the right time to leave is never going to exist. The, the the right thing to do at a given time is going to exist, and you're only going to know that based on being mindful. So it's important um, on the on the one hand to um, readjust your perspective and instead of trying to find the answer to a specific question like this, try and, 
become more sensitive to what you should do in any given moment. So right now, become more mindful so that you're more sensitive to the reality of the situation and and more wise in terms of what what aspects of the situation are wholesome, what aspects are unwholesome, what actions are going to increase, lead to more wholesomeness, which actions are going to lead to more unwholesomeness. And that will give you your answers. You'll be able to find reasonable solutions. It, you'll, you'll, you'll come to see that it's reasonable to leave now, or now it's not reasonable to leave. Because on the one hand, you're grounded in reality. And on the other hand, you are you don't have to abandon conceptual reality. So there's going to be lots of conceptual concepts that you can relate back to reality, like people and relationships. Like a relationship, you can relate back to wholesomeness and unwholesomeness and goodness and evil by by seeing how if I leave this person, it's going to increase unwholesomeness in this way, or if I stay with this person, it's going to increase unwholesomeness in this way. But you'll see that through being mindful, and uh, it's not it, mindfulness doesn't give you, doesn't provide answers. Or as a teacher, I don't provide answers to questions like this. But I provide you the means to be able to um, free yourself from such questions. And sometimes the freeing is similar to getting an answer, but sometimes it's also seeing that the question was not valid. So. In this case, I think you might find an answer in the sense that you might suddenly realize through mindfulness that now is the time to leave. Um, but it, it won't be because of a focusing on the question, like a making a list of pros and cons or something. It will be because of a greater mindfulness. Bhante, we've crossed the hour. There's one more question in Tier 1. Do you have time to answer? Yeah, go ahead. How do I remain mindful when I am procrastinating or don't want to do the work? Well, you'd be mindful of the um, not wanting. It's a disliking state. Procrastinating is not really real. It's just uh, your description. You have to look at why that's happening. And there's going to be some disliking or aversion or boredom or craving for other things, that sort of thing, liking of the, the feelings of relaxing and being lazy and so on. And you just have to learn to be mindful of those as well. Okay, that's the last of our questions in the top tier. All right, thank you everyone. Thank you for your questions. Thank you, Chris, and Edit for your help. And... Have a good week, everyone. May you all be happy and find peace and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.